So I had, I had this treasure chest in the Rocky Mountains, somewhere between Santa Fe and the Canadian border. It's in Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, or New Mexico. And it's there, it's waiting for somebody. Believe it or not. Believe it or not, incomparable, inimitable, illimitable, inestimable, introducer of immeasurable, incalculable, incredible impossibility. Welcome to Ripley's Believe It or Not cast, the podcast that brings you deep into the strange, the bizarre, and the unusual. I'm Ryan. And I'm Brent. And this week, we are going to go treasure hunting with a man who Robert Ripley would have been completely fascinated with. The man's name is Forrest Fenn. We're going to present an exclusive interview with Forrest, whose life reads like a true adventure novel. Uh, This guy was a war hero who flew over 300 combat missions. He was shot down twice. Then he returned home and started a super successful art and antique shop, which allowed him to hobnob with fancy friends like Jackie Kennedy Onassis and Michael Douglas. Forrest was and still is an incredible guy, and you're going to learn all about him. Uh, That's right, Brent. And for all of those reasons, Forrest was an amazing interview. He opened his home to us in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, where his antique shop is also located. And we were lucky enough to visit his office and see some of his legendary pieces. I especially love checking out a peace pipe that was once owned by Sitting Bull. But Ryan, there's another reason why we wanted Forrest on the Notcast, right? And that is because Forrest is the man who's launched a modern day treasure hunt an idea he conjured after having a health scare in the 1980s. Pondering his mortality, Forrest had a thought. He wondered what his legacy would be. And so I I found this wonderful little treasure chest, cast bronze treasure chest, a couple hundred years old. And I started filling it with wonderful things, Uh, 265 gold coins, American eagles and double eagles. There's some, uh, there's some coins in there that are dating in the 1400s from South, someplace India or someplace over there, and, and uh, hundreds, hundreds of gold nuggets. Two of them were as big as a chicken leg, and I, uh, I wanted uh, the chest. The chest was just 10 inches by 10 inches, so I, I couldn't put big things in there. But there are hundreds of gold nuggets in there. There are two little antique Chinese jade carvings that are absolutely wonderful. There's lots of, there's a sinew and Tyrona necklace that's a couple of thousand years old that's full of uh, fetishes strung on it, you know, semi-precious stones, carnelian, and there's a jaguar claw that's that's cast gold, it's, it's strung on there. I mean, I was really proud of the things that I was, I was going to go hide that thing. And I told myself that I've had so much fun over, over the last 50 or 75 years finding these things. Why not give somebody, if I'm going to die, why not let somebody else have the same enjoyment that I've had over the years doing this thing? That was one of my motivations. That's right. Forrest says he's hidden a small chest with about $5 million worth of treasure buried somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. Better yet, 
Forrest wrote a 24-line poem that he says offers clues about the location of the treasure. Here's one stanza of the poem just to get a flavor of what we're talking about. Begin it where warm waters halt and take it in the canyon down, not far, but too far to walk, put in below the home of Brown. On this episode, we'll also talk to two of the most dedicated treasure hunters who have spent years and thousands of dollars of their own money to try and find Forrest's prize. So to start, what does Fenn hope to accomplish by hiding some of his fortune? To answer that, we have to travel back in time, back to when Fenn was a boy growing up in the wilds of Texas in the 1930s. But I was born and raised in Temple, Texas, and which is right in the middle of the Baptist Belt, <laughs> and I grew up in that kind of an environment, very, uh, really a, a sedate society by today's standards. But sure, my father was a school teacher, so we had this three months off in the summer, and we always went to Yellowstone, and my father built a motel up there, and then later I built a motel, but we were, we were both professional fishing guides in the summer. I was a professional fishing guide when I was 13 years old, and I, I was running a tackle shop all by myself. I made flies. I tied cat gut leaders in those days before we had nylon. And uh, th those were the good old days. I mean, I loved that Yellowstone country. Uh, well, my father and my football coach in high school, they were, they, were, they were buddies and they were arrowhead collectors. And so they got me interested in that and that I found my first arrowhead when I was nine years old. And that started me on a expedition that lasted for, for 80 years. I mean, I'm 89 years old now, so I, I, I've been looking for arrowheads for 80 years to try to match that record. After a less than stellar high school career, Finn enlisted in the Air Force during the Korean conflict and became an accomplished pilot. He would go on to fly 328 combat missions in Vietnam, where he was shot down once and had to eject another time. Finn escaped death only to confront danger in the Laotian jungle while he was awaiting rescue. Well, I spent the night in, in the jungle. Uh, it was kind of tense at the time to me. The, the, the jungle over there is not hot and it's not cold. It's, it's, it's temperate, really. And uh, I remember uh, in the middle of the night, uh, there was a bright light about a quarter of a mile or half a mile away from me, and I told myself that, that my buddies were dropping flares. They're going to come pick me up at night. But then all of a sudden, the trees just laid over, limbs were breaking, and and it was it was a flight of three B-52s out of Guam were dropping bombs at uh, at I think twenty or thirty thousand feet on command of radar, and uh, those B-52s carry a hundred and five, seven hundred and fifty, or five hundred pound bombs, and they they release them, click, 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 click like that, and so we're looking at three hundred three hundred and fifteen of those things dropping, and. It must have lasted a minute, maybe. I don't know how long, but but the noise was just over overpowered. I told myself if they did it again, I wasn't going to live through it. I mean, it was just... But then I I learned it happened one more time, and I got down behind a log, and I, I covered up, and, and it, it, I, I survived it okay. But it, it was... A, I, I didn't know there for a while. <laughs> and off in the distance, I could hear dogs barking. 
So I figured the enemy was looking for me in the path that Lyle don't, they don't take prisoners. They don't have a prisoner war camp. So I knew it was not a good, good thing for, for those dogs to find me. So I, I, I had a big can of uh, pepper that I had. In. A lot of the pilots made midnight requisitions of the mess hall and to get cans of pepper because if you spread the pepper around the, do the dogs, that'll deaden the dog's nose and uh, theoretically it gives you a percentage. I don't know if it does or not, but I did that and to protect myself. I mean, but I did sleep some and I was... I was awakened by noises a few times in that jungle. And then the next morning at first light, the forward air controller that was controlling my mission the night before came looking for me. At first light, he was out, and I, I heard, I couldn't see him because of the trees, but I heard this little putt-putt airplane, and and so I moved over on on some big rocks where that gave me a, a view of the sky. And I... I followed his noise, and then in a minute I saw his airplane, and I was talking to him on my radio. And I told him to stay in a left turn uh, until I tell you to stop, and then look down on a bunch of rocks, you'll see a guy waving like a windmill, I think was the phrase I used. So Fenn was rescued, but by 1970, after being awarded a Purple Heart, he was out of the Air Force and done with the military. It was time to find something else to do with his life. When I retired from the Air Force on the 30th of September, 1970, I was driving from the Air Force. I'd signed out. I was no longer in the Air Force. I, I lived about eight miles from the, the base in Lubbock through cotton fields. And I got about, I had a little Volkswagen bug I was driving, and I got a halfway home, and a strange emotion came over me, and I pulled over to the side, and, and I... I climbed through a barbed wire fence to get out in this big cotton field, and I walked a couple of hundred yards out in the middle of this big field, and, and I took my watch off, and I threw it just as far as I could throw it. It was a religious experience for me. And then I took my little calendar out of my wallet, and I shredded it and spread it to the four winds, and, and uh, I felt better after that. I told myself, this is part of my life that I'm closing the door. The door that opened was Finn's fascination with collecting arrowheads and Native American artifacts, which he used to launch his antique and art shop. He would eventually acquire a collection that includes rare pieces from around the world. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any inventory. I didn't have any education. I had no experience. I mean, what else could I not have besides, besides that? But and I had, I had two. My wife and I slept on the floor and in, in a mat on a mattress while we plastered the walls. I mean, that's that's how raw we were. And and I. My first two shows, I didn't sell anything, not even a book. And I told myself, you know, I had just a little bit of money left. I said, I'm going to spend that money advertising. And if that doesn't work, I'm going to go talk to McDonald's, see if I can get a job flipping hamburgers or something. But that started to work, and I started parlaying. You know, I, I always told myself I wanted to play Monopoly, you know, I, I want to trade one into three, into seven, into 21, and, and build a business. And I had a bunch of rules that I made for myself. And, and one, one of my rules was that I didn't want, I didn't want to have any business where my best client, best client gave me $3,500. I, I look at businesses today, and I really admire the people that own 
one-hour martinizing and J.C. Penney and and those things, you know, where uh, somebody comes in and they buy something for for ninety, their best customers ninety-five. Ninety-five dollars for for people for dinner, and I didn't want to do that. I mean, it's it's labor intensive, and the cook doesn't show up, and so I wanted to deal in luxuries, and and that's that's why I did that. Uh, my gallery operated really good around forty thousand dollars an an item. I really didn't know what I was doing. Over half my life had been spent in, in the military, and there were endless traders. They call them pickers or traders or something. They, they'd find something over there and they'd bring it to me and, I'd, and I would buy it. And many times the trader would come in my gallery and he'd want to borrow a painting. for. Let me, let me borrow that for an hour. And he would take it someplace and sell it and bring, come back and bring me my money. I mean, for I survived by traders coming in and, and consigning things to me or selling me things. And... And that, that's how you learn the business. That's how I got all of this stuff. But uh, there, there are two great teachers in your life. One is, one is experience and the other one is repetition. You can go to college all you want to, but the two teachers are experience and repetition. And that's how I learned the business. Things had gone well for Fenn and his family. But in 1988, Fenn was diagnosed with kidney cancer and after a five-hour surgery, was told he probably had three years to live. As he said, it makes you think about how you're going to be remembered. So Fenn had the idea to put some of his favorite things in that little treasure chest. But a funny thing happened on the way to the grave. Fenn got better, then made a full recovery. The idea of the treasure chest, which had been in the back of his mind all of these years, only grew more pressing. Friends even commented on it. What was he going to do with the little chest filled with rare treasure? In about 2010, Fenn will not pinpoint exactly when, but he finally felt ready to bury the chest after he added something personal to the collection, a bracelet that had its own interesting backstory. After placing it in the chest, Fenn could close the lid and set out into the Rocky Mountains to bury it. When your doctor tells you you're going to die, I mean, one in five chances is not very good. I, I told myself that, you know, if I've got to go, I'm just going to take it with me. Who says I can't take it with me? I don't subscribe to all these things I've heard all my life. And I had some other motivations, you know, I wanted to get the kids off the couch and out of the game room and out into the mountains. And so I hid, I hid this treasure chest in the Rocky Mountains, somewhere between Santa Fe and the Canadian border. It's in Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, or New Mexico. And it's there, it's waiting for somebody. And uh, it took me a, a, a long time to, 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 to fill that chest up with, with things that are, you know, I wanted it to be very visual. I wanted it to be, worth enough that people would go looking for it and then when they found it and opened the lid it'd be something that was very visual to them and they uh, uh, I can see a person's expression on his face when he opens that lid and looks but uh, again I had filled the treasure chest up with with enough things valuable things a lot of 265 rubies there's there's emeralds, there's, there's some diamonds, there's a couple of salon sapphires in there, and, 
and some pre-Columbian gold jewelry, bracelets and different things. Word about the buried treasure blew up in 2013 when Finn appeared on the Today Show to promote his book, The Thrill of the Chase, which includes the 24-line poem that offers clues to the treasure's location. A Santa Fe bookstore called Collected Works, which exclusively sells Finn's book, said sales immediately grew from 25 copies per month to 25 copies per minute. I said two summers ago that after a lot of math- mathematics, I told myself there 350,000 people have looked for that treasure. Some of them, that's counting, some of them have been looking for it for a hundred times. Uh, and more and and so I was the, the the mayor of Santa Fe gave me a proclamation two years ago because the the the, the, the occupancy rate in the motels was up six percent both years and nobody could understand why so you know I like to take credit for some of the things I might not have earned them but uh, in my wildest dreams I did not I mean I, at that time, I, I've written 11 books and nobody ever wanted my, my, my parents are dead. Who's going to buy my book? And I, I, The Thrill of the Chase is that book where I tell the story about the treasure chest. And I wanted to print 500 copies. And my printer said, you can't print 500 copies. It's not economically feasible. He said, you've got to print at least 1,000. I said, okay, print 1,000. Well, a lady by the name of Margie Goldsmith in Manhattan, wrote a story for, for Hemispheres magazine, which is the in-flight magazine that goes behind the seat in United Airplanes, every United Airplane. And the, that magazine came out, and the next day I got, I got 1,200 emails. I mean, it shut shut my server down. I was three days coming back online again, and and that 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 was the catalyst that lit the fuse. That, wow. that started this whole thing, and then it's been endless publicity since that time. And and my my bookstore here is sold. I mean, it's a privately published book in a privately owned bookstore, and she sold just under fifty three thousand copies of that book. Oh my gosh! It's in eleventh printing. Every time something like that comes out, the books just jump off the. the the shelves down to bookstore, but I anticipated that people would accuse me of of writing the book, of hiding the treasure chest to sell books. I anticipate that, and that's why I gave the bookstore, the Collected Works bookstore in Santa Fe, I gave them all of the books. Gave them the books. That means that I didn't even get my printing costs back. And they have to pay for the reprints, but, I mean... I didn't want people to say that, that the treasure story was a hoax. There have been a few people that have said that, but it's, they, they, they all fall into a, a kind of a tight-knit little scenario where they, they know exactly where the treasure is hidden. And when they go there, it isn't there. So one of two things has happened. Either somebody has already found it or the whole thing's a hoax. The funny part is that they're all still out there looking for the treasure chest. After all of these years, Fenn says he is satisfied with what the search has produced, not so much in terms of adding to his wealth, but in the relationships it had created among the hunters. But it's, it has accomplished what I wanted to. I mean, I get wonderful emails. I keep thinking about this one little girl. She was about seven. She, she, she called me on the phone. Her father was standing there and 
I'm sure they were, I think, from North, North Carolina or someplace. She said, Mr. Finn, if I find a treasure chest, do I have to share it with my brother? I mean, that kind of thing. There was, there was a man had not spoken to his brother for 17 years. He read about the treasure story, called his brother, and now they're looking for the treasure chest. I mean, there's lots. There were, I've had, I think, nine different people tell me that they were going to kill themselves until they read the story, and now they're looking for the treasure. Wow. How powerful is that? Yet some have pushed too far. Four people have died while looking for the treasure, the most recent in January 2017, which resulted in New Mexico police urging Finn to call off the search. But Finn says the treasure has not been moved. Well, that's very, tra very tragic, but sure. I, I don't want to talk about that. Can I ask you, what advice would you give to uh, people who just want to go out and treasure hunt and do it safely? Can you give, that, can you give advice for that? Well, sure. I would go to the blog, go to Dal Neitzel's blog, dalneitzel.com, and there are other blogs that we've gone out of our way to list the things that you that you need to do. But I can uh, right, briefly take lots of water, tell somebody where you're going and where you're going and when you're going to come out, take your telephone, take a GPS, and and just use common sense. And when you're going to a special spot, call the people in charge of that area. I mean, if it's a park ranger or a BLM agent, whoever it is, call them on the phone and say, look, I'm going in there. What do, what do I need to look for? The, the, the mountains can be terribly unforgiving to those who don't respect what they're capable of doing. You get on a little mountain road and you, you drive 15 miles looking looking for the treasure and you start out a tree's falling across the road you can't get out you don't have a chainsaw you're not ready to spend three or four days till another car comes on that little road those things can happen to you so uh, i've known people that that have so much stuff on their backpack that they can't go looking for the treasure <laughs> Finn says that he's told no one about the location of the treasure. When he dies, the secret goes with him. But he did offer up a bit of advice for those who are searching. Well, I've, I've, I've said many times that don't look for the treasure someplace where a 79 or 80-year-old man couldn't go twice in one afternoon. I mean, I took, uh, I, I took the, the gold in one time, and then I came back to my car. I got the treasure chest, and I took it in. I mean, the... I didn't want to carry 42 pounds at one time. And and the goal was about half the weight of the chest, so it worked out really good. And I, I, I went to where I hid that chest. I did it twice in one afternoon from my car. There, there are a number of clues and hints already. There's ample information that will lead you to the treasure if you can figure. I keep telling people, go back to the poem. If you don't know where warm waters halt, you might as well stay home and play canasta. Now we'd like to introduce Sasha Johnston, a 38-year-old realtor from Albuquerque who started hunting Finn's treasure about six years ago. She estimates she's gone out hunting about 300 times. I have to believe that it's something that's existed inside of me always because hearing about it gave me such excitement and appeal. It, was, it wasn't even a question. Of course, I was gonna go look for this treasure. There was a hidden treasure and there was a chance I could find it. You better believe I was taking that opportunity. Um, I actually, at that time, I thought it was hidden. So, uh, it was silly, but I thought it was hidden right along the Rio Grande. 
And so I had a specific spot I wanted to check. I piled my Toyota 4Runner with my now ex-husband and my eight-month-old child. And we drove uh, two hours, a little over, to where I thought the treasure was hidden. And, and it, you would kind of discern this from, from, the, from the, the clues? Yes, at the time it's what I thought the clues meant. Um, and this was, again, my very first treasure hunt, which I had no idea what to expect. So, well, I mean, to me it sounds like a road trip. Uh, kind of, it was. Yeah. So it ended up being rainy that day. Ugh. So uh, my son stayed in the back of the SUV and played, and I trudged through grass that was taller than me. And it was then I realized that everywhere I was standing would be flooded by the Rio Grande in the spring, and there wasn't a chance that a treasure chest that small would be able to make it in that environment. So I pretty much instantly knew um, I was wrong and came back home. And I realized this was going to be a lot harder than I thought it was, but I was absolutely hooked. Johnston is one of hundreds of treasure hunters who watch YouTube videos, collaborate on social media, and follow blogs and other websites debating where the treasure might be. Just the tiniest breakthrough or perceived breakthrough keeps them coming back for more. Uh, you've seen The Goonies, right? Iconic movie for anyone who grew up in that era, right? Right here. Well, when Forrest Fenn came out with the second book and put the treasure map in it, and I saw the treasure map, I had my aha moment. I, the first thing that popped into my head was the scene from the Goonies when they're in the attic Goonies of the house and they knock the picture over and it breaks and they find this map, right? Sure, yeah. Well, I think it was Corey Haim who speaks Spanish. Oh, and yes. he has to translate it he to translate English. It. And he says, ye intruders beware, right? Right, right? And it's written in this beautiful cursive. Well, so is the the writing on Forrest Fenn's treasure map, but it's written in English. Mm -hmm. So I'm remembering this scene and I said, you know, they had to translate that map from Spanish to English. I wonder if you need to do the same here. And I did. I took the words warm waters and translated them in Spanish, which is agua caliente, and found out that there's a place named that right outside of Taos. Wow. Yeah. So that was my aha moment. And uh, that was the first time I said, hey, I might be onto something. Then there's 65 year old Cynthia Meacham, who says the day she lost her job in 2015 was really the best day of her entire life. That's the day she could start devoting her time to finding Forrest Finn's treasure. The Rio Rancho, New Mexico resident was close to retirement at her job as a field service engineer at Intel anyway, she says. And she also has some advice for newbie hunters out there. Sure, I'm, I'm, I'm the typical kid that loved to be outside, whether it was hiking, camping, not really fishing at all, though I did grow up around a creek and all this and that, but um, grew up spending a lot of time outdoors. And then um, as a kid, I loved the game of Clue, the board game Clue. Oh, yeah, and I also loved, uh, and then as I got older, I loved the movies that had to do with treasure hunting and of course the Indiana Jones Goonies. I'm sure you've heard maybe other searchers talk about Goonies, right? Oh, yeah. so, so all those kind of movies, you know, where you're, where you're getting to go out into the wilderness or the mountains and play. And then, um, but I've told other people the hook for me is his poem. And it's like, it's a combination of you have to, you have to solve something and then you go out and then you try to find it. 
My advice for all searchers, boots on the ground, you really have to know the location you're going to go to. You need to watch the weather. It doesn't matter if you're in the mountains of New Mexico or the mountains of Wyoming and Montana. Weather is so changeable in the mountains. And if you're going to the Pecos, take a raincoat. I've been in the Pecos Mountains here, I don't know how many times. It has rained every afternoon I've ever been there, which is typical of any, any mountains. I mean, whether you're in Cody or West Yellowstone, it can be sunny there, but you go into the mountains to do your search and it's gonna rain. Uh, it can be, I've been in Cody this year when they had snow so early I mean, you'd go up there and, and you have a, a day or two and then a frickin' a storm comes through and it can rain or snow in June. So just watch the weather before you go. Know what the weather's going to be and take the appropriate clothing. And I think Forrest even talked about it maybe in the interview with you. you I always have a chain that in my truck, I carry a chain, not for the tires, but because if I get stuck, someone can tow me out. Or he talked about what if a tree falls over on, your, on the outside of the, of the dirt road or the Forest Service road, and you need to drag that tree so you can get out. So I always have that with me summer. It doesn't matter what the season. If you're going to go, like I just went uh, in October, I, you know, the snow shovel, that the warm clothing with the, the wool ski hat, warm coat, gloves, and, and snow boots, just in case. So Everything's just in case. It is a just in case. And water. Oh, my gosh. Especially if you're searching in New Mexico. Make sure you have enough drinking water. Meacham has a war room in her home, which is actually a converted library where she spreads out all of her Fen research and plans her next hunt. Meacham estimates she spent $10,000 traveling to search last year alone. The hobby takes time and money, but the thrill will always stay with her even when Fenn has passed on. So, and even after Forrest passes away, if it still has not been found, I think my goal is to perpetuate the thrill of the chase, and that means try to solve the poem, have fun with it, but go out on that adventure. It, it is totally about going out into the woods mountains, wherever you want to go and whatever. It's a win-win. It doesn't matter what state you go to. It's a win-win. I, I mean, you're in the Rocky Mountains in one of the four states or you do them all, like almost like I have done. And you will never, I don't think you will ever regret any of this. We'd like to thank Forrest Fenn for inviting us into his home, as well as Cynthia Meacham and Sasha Johnston for sharing their stories with us today. So did you know, Ryan, that there have been several other treasures completely lost to history? Check out our website, Ripley's.com. And learn about how millions of dollars in Confederate gold, a priceless Prussian gold palace, and the $200,000 given to Skyjacker D.B. Cooper have all, for the most part, been lost without any explanation. Believe it or not. Where could it all be? Find the latest theories at Ripley's.com. In this episode, we've learned a lot about treasure and the motivations for leaving it and finding it. But the idea of leaving behind a treasure is not really anything new. The difference is most people really don't publicize their treasure as much as Forrest Finn has. Take the treasure of wealthy gangster Dutch Schultz. He was a known millionaire, but people are still trying to find out what he did with all of his money. Born in 1902 in the Bronx, Schultz fell in with legendary gangster Lucky Luciano, 
and ran bootlegging operations during Prohibition. By today's standard, he brought in nearly $800,000 per month. As the feds circled, it was rumored that Schultz hid millions of dollars somewhere in the Catskills, though no one has ever found it. He was shot and killed at age 33. Similar to Finn's story is that of Thomas J. Beale, who in the 1820s entrusted a box of encrypted messages to local innkeeper Robert Morris in Bedford County, Virginia. Beale then disappeared with the challenge that anyone who could decipher his messages could find a treasure worth about $43 million. The innkeeper passed it on to a friend, who then published the messages. The first two have been solved, but the last has not, causing many to wonder if the entire episode is nothing more than a hoax. Then there's the legendary Oak Island mystery, which is said to have first been passed down from a dying sailor from the crew of Captain Kidd in the 17th century. The sailor said a treasure of about 2 million pounds, or more than $2.5 million, was hidden somewhere on the island located in Nova Scotia. Since the 19th century, numerous attempts have been made to find the treasure and artifacts, and various items, carbon dated to be hundreds of years old, have been discovered, but no significant treasure has ever been found. In a 1967 issue of True, the man's magazine, it was said there was a curse on the treasure, and that it would not be found until seven men had died pursuing it. To date, six men have died. There's something that will always fascinate us about a lost treasure and those who are trying to find it. Is it the adventure? Is it the mystery? Is it the idea of essentially testing your wits and intelligence and endurance to win a prize? It's probably all of those things. And as long as there's treasure to be found and people out there willing to try and find it, we here at the Notcast will be following them. Believe us or not. Ripley's Believe It or Not cast is produced by myself, Ryan Clark, and Sabrina Seek. Our executive producer is Amanda Joyner. I edit the show. The Notcast is recorded at the historic Herzog Studio, home of the nonprofit Cincinnati USA Music Heritage Foundation. Visit Herzog in person or sign up online at herzogmusic.com. The Notcast intro theme was put together by Colton Cruz, and our ending theme song is by the band Wussy. If you enjoyed this episode, please go smash that fifth star on Apple Podcasts. If you have comments, questions, or ideas, email us at notcast at ripleys.com or tweet at ripleys. And catch us next week on the Notcast when we celebrate amazing survival stories. We'll talk to a meteorologist who was struck by lightning and a heroic nurse determined to help people escape horrifying wildfires in California after saving herself first. Join us for those and other stories as we celebrate being thankful next week on Ripley's Believe It or Not cast. I got a letter from this girl. She said, why should I go into the mountains and look for your treasure? I said, but she was from Kansas or someplace where they never heard of a mountain. And I said, first of all, you need to experience it. And I said, find an old rotten log and turn it over and, and look at what's under, make a list of what's under that log. I mean, there's caterpillars, there's grubs, there's spiders, there's all sorts of things. You, you may find a black widow spider, that's educational. And uh, I, about two months later, I got a nice letter from that little girl. She listed all the things that she could find. She said, there's three different kinds of ants, three different sizes. I mean, that 
reminded me of why I wrote the book and hid the treasures.